0: a society today where progressively those who live lives based on biblical principles are being portrayed as troublemakers or threats. But in some cases those who claim the faith are becoming a threat to themselves. Welcome to A Walk in the Word where we bring you the Sunday sermons from Providence Baptist Church Gaston's worship services. In this week's sermon. Pastor John Friedrich looks to the book of Jude to warn us of two common errors we see in the church today. Let's join in as Pastor Friedrich preaches a message entitled, Buyer Beware from the book of Jude.
1: All right, it's good to be in the Lord's house with everybody this morning as we dive into God's word and see what he has to say. So as I said, we're in the book of Jude and we'll be reading verses 3 through 11. There are no chapters in Jude because there's just one chapter basically. So, if you would, follow along with me, and we're going to be reading verses 3-11, through 11, as I said. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who are, were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, <clears throat> turning, to the grace, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how the, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them, in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee, but, speak these, but these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts. In those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before your throne once again this morning, we thank you for this opportunity to be in your house, Lord. It is always a blessing, a privilege, and an honor to be able to lift your name in praise and worship and to sing of your goodness and of just how wonderful a God you are. And Lord, now as we go into your word, we just ask that you help us to prepare our hearts and our minds. Help us to be open and receptive to all that which you want us to hear today. And Lord, I know... I'm not worthy to stand before these folks today and to present this message. I just ask that you take me and use me as you see fit. Take away any distraction, selfishness, pride, whatever it might be that could in any way interfere with the message. Lord, just take it all away. Empty me, make me your vessel that and fill me with your spirit that I might speak only the words that you've laid upon my heart. And Lord, as a church, help us to continue to strive to go forward in the community around us. Help us to strive to be a beacon of hope, a beacon of your love, and a beacon of the gospel. To all those that we come in contact with, to reach out to those with those things so that we're always outwardly focused and neverly inwardly serving, Lord, to help us to fulfill the role that you have for us as a church. And Lord, as individuals, help us to go throughout our day living lives in such a way that we glorify you. Help us to see opportunities to share the gospel in this dark and dying world that we live in, Lord. And Lord, forgive us of our sins and the times that we've chosen to put ourselves above you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I was encouraged as I was watching the news (coughs) recently (coughs) on how there appears to be a a revival of sorts breaking out in different parts of the country. It began, I believe, in Asbury College in Kentucky where they had a church service uh, and it more or less didn't stop. Um, They've been going for several days now and to the point where it's starting to draw people in from other parts of the country that are coming to want to be a part of what appears to be a revival. There's people falling on their faces in repentance before God. There's uh, professions of faith. There's all kinds of movement of the Holy Spirit appears in this. And honestly, I I've not had an opportunity to see that firsthand, but it excites me to think that that might be happening because it's starting, as we see, to break out in other places across the country. And, I, and as, a, as a pastor and as a Christian, you always hope to have that kind of revival. You always hope to see that hope that, that the world hasn't completely taken over, that God has stepped in and said, not yet. It's not time for me to return just yet. I'm going to have some more movement of the Holy Spirit in the world that we live in today. Unfortunately, a lot of the other stuff still goes on. And we see Jude actually warning people in his day of some of the things that we see going on today. Although it's encouraging to see this revival going on, we can still need to be aware of The possibilities of churches that lead people down a different path. Um, And Jude is addressing this in what we read this morning. And we find ourselves in a book that's often overlooked. It's very small. It falls right before the book of Revelation. So people kind of want to jump onto Revelation where the the real uh, questions that people are asking right now are the answers lie a lot. And yet, it holds for us. Even though it's small, has few verses, it holds for us of some warnings, some very important warnings that we need to take heed of, particularly in light of the day that we live in today. Now, as we begin to explore what God is telling us through this, I want to make note of something very important in the context here. <clears throat> in the book of Jude, Jude starts off by telling readers that he had intended. To write to them regarding the wonderful salvation that so many had experienced at this point, but there was something more that he needed to address. He didn't want to just leave it at that. An issue that was so urgent that it usurped God or Jude's desire to extol the the wonderful virtues of God's gift of salvation. So whatever this was, whatever it was that he was this message he was trying to get across was so important. He set aside the glorifying of God over the plan of salvation in order to get this across. And what's more, we need to remember that Jude here is writing to believers. This message that he gave this letter that he wrote is going to believers about something that takes place amongst them. So this isn't written to non-believers. This is addressing people that already believe and that something was going awry. Something was going amiss here. So in other words, his warnings in these verses are not about the unsaved who have nothing to do with the things of God, but rather those who claim to belong to him. So we got to keep that and keep that in the back of your mind as we go through what he's talking about today. And Jude doesn't mince words. He doesn't do a lot of introduction or anything like that. He jumps right into it and tells them directly, right off the bat, that they need to earnestly contend for the faith. Now let's do a little word study here. The expression contend, earnestly, means to exhort an enormous amount of effort on behalf. That means really putting everything you got into it. And the word translated contend carries with it an idea of an athlete who's who's really struggling, he's really competing, he's fighting with all his might. So if you go into a Greek lexicon, <coughs> Greek-English lexicon, <coughs> it describes it as An effort expended in a noble cause. And the way he wrote it, Jude's words carry with it a sense of urgency. Not only that we need to give it all we've got, but we need to be urgent about what we're doing. So folks, just as Jude describes here, we are in a fight for our faith. It might not be so obvious within the walls of this church But nonetheless, that battle exists and it is raging today. And we don't need to go far to look at the news and things that are happening across our nation and across the world to believe that. We are in a fight for our faith today. In our verse, we see Jude explain why we are expending such an effort. Because the noble cause is the faith. The faith itself. But what, is it, what exactly is Jude getting at though? What does he mean particularly by the faith? Well, to put it in one commentator's words, Jude saw the faith as including the life-changing activity of God, conformity to its moral imperatives, and complete obedience to Jesus. Another way of saying it is those things which we believe rather than the fact that we believe them. So we're contending for the things that we believe we're not just defending our own faith, but rather we're putting the things that we believe out there. We're defending them. We're, we're trying to tell the world these are important for you to understand, despite the fact that they're being attacked on every side. We get a picture of just that in the expression, once delivered, which carries with it the meaning of completely or wholly, meaning once and for all. Jude is referring to faith in every aspect when he says we need to earnestly contend for the faith. This also tells us the faith has already been delivered in its completeness. We are not at liberty to add to it. We are not at liberty to remove what we don't like about it. We are to deliver God's message in its entirety, God's word in its fullness. We do not have the right the privilege or any aspect of authority to remove anything from God's Word we cannot go and say well this doesn't apply anymore
0: Amen.
1: we cannot go and say well this really doesn't fit in today's society this really doesn't fit in our progressive culture that we live in we do not have the authority to say that God's Word exists in its entirety or not at all <clears throat> Now over the years there have been two avenues that kind of rage against the completeness of the faith here. and The the inspired communication of God's person. Either a legalistic approach is taken where some feel it needs to be expanded upon. We need to add a little bit here and there, adding this and that over time. Then there's the opposite response where a liberal view of scriptures is taken and that we remove parts because, well, they're considered repulsive. They're considered outdated or ridiculous. And when this approach takes hold, you end up with some sort of blend of humanism, psychology or a mixture of religious philosophies. Now this isn't anything new. It's not like we've got the patent on the thinking of the day. This kind of thing evidently existed thousands of years ago, too. After all, we see Jude addressing that very thing when he wrote this. And he didn't write it last week. But we must also note that it will become more prevalent as we get closer and closer to the end times. And I know I've talked a lot about the fact that the signs seem to be lining up. But look at 1 Timothy 4.1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the what latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Now the individuals that Jude warns them of are referred to as ungodly men. Yet notice something interesting. They crept in unawares. It wasn't like some unbeliever came into the churches and said you guys are all full of baloney, this is all hogwash, don't believe any of it. It says that ungodly men crept in unawares, which means they came in under the guise of religion. It's important not to miss this. The word ungodly describes men who live without a reverential awe toward God, and yet they were able to blend in amongst those who do. This is important to understand because it describes someone who does not have the proper perspective on God. And yet, they exist amongst those who do. They do not see God as righteous. They do not see God as holy. They do not see God as a supreme being who, although he loves us unconditionally, will also sit in judgment of people and nations. I want to stress this again. This is important to understand because it sets the framework for the particular behaviors that Jude is calling them out for. As a side note, it's interesting that Jude, in verse 5, begins to remind the readers of the judgment of God. And in verse 7, we're reminded of several instances where God did, in fact, judge. Reminded of those that suffered at the hand of God that legitimized evil. And in verse 11, we're reminded of three individuals who, in one way or another, all rebelled against the spiritual authority of God choosing to be self-directed rather than submitting to God's established authority. Jude made a point. He made a specific effort to remind his readers and consequently us thousands of years later that God will judge that mindset if we challenge the authority of God. We see Peter refer to this judgment in 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 1 where he says but there were false prophets also among the people even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction so we're warned in multiple places not just in Jude's letter but we see it in the New Testament of these very things of people bringing in false doctrines of people coming in unawares So what does this look like then? What is it specifically that he warns us about that we need to be very careful about? What behaviors that he describe in these individuals? Well, the first one involves the cheapening of the grace of God. His letter said, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness, or another way of putting it, turning the grace of God into a license to sin, or a means of pleasuring the flesh. Cheapening the grace of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's a German theologian whose Christian convictions ended up costing him his life at the hand of the Nazis during World War II, he wrote this in his book. He said, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. But what does this look like today though, folks? What does this look like today? And what it looks like are doctrines where we seek the grace of God for reasons that are selfish. I've often railed about the prosperity gospel and its spin-offs, and the feel-good gospels that we often talk about and I condemn. It's materialistic, it's self-centered, And its approach to Christianity is not only a heresy, but it's an affront to God. But there's another, much more subtle kind of Christianity that lurks in so many churches and mindsets. It sounds very appealing to the masses, but lacks the fundamental piece of knowing Christ as Lord and Savior. And that is personal accountability. You see, if if I were to come to you and tell you that God wants to forgive your sins... In fact, he's already made arrangements for it. So do you want to go to heaven when you die? How many people do you think would say no? <laughs> There's not a single individual out there that would say, I don't want to go to heaven. How many people do you think would answer? But when you explain to them why they need forgiveness, and that we are wretched sinners, if left to ourselves condemned to an eternal and very deserving sentence of separation from God in a horrible place called hell and we must first acknowledge that truth in our hearts recognizing the sin in our lives as nobody's fault but our own Amen. and seeing it as the absolute rebellion against the holy and righteous God that, is it, that it is, suddenly people get offended yeah I want to go to heaven, well do you recognize that you're a wretched sinner unacceptable to God, oh how can you say that about me Folks, that's exactly it. That's exactly the problem. You see, they want heaven, but they don't want to admit who they are. And a big reason for that is acknowledging those things calls to mind a need for becoming a changed individual allowing Jesus to do his work within you and turn your heart towards him so that we turn away from our old ways. We repent of the sins in our life. See, we've got to remember, that's what that word repent means. It means to turn away from.
0: Amen.
1: When you repent of sin, you're not saying, well, I'm sorry I did it until next time. You're saying, God, I am sorry for offending you. Help me turn away from this in my life so that I no longer feel drawn to it. We live in a world today where personal accountability seems unnecessary. Our society today is moving where when someone commits a crime, it seems like it's everybody else's fault school failed them or they were under too much pressure because of this or that or they were treated unfairly. No, they committed a crime because of their fundamental sinful nature that exists in their heart and in the heart of every man, woman, and child that ever lived.
0: Amen.
1: And I think to a great extent this is kind of bled over to every aspect of life including the spiritual side. We don't seem to see the need for personal accountability in our spiritual life anymore than society seems to see it in our physical We are content with grabbing hold of the grace of God without understanding the mercy of God. You see, you can't completely grasp the first one unless you understand the second one. Amen. This also happens when we have a one-sided view of God's love for us. The idea of the fact that and the reality, the truth, that God loves us unconditionally is a very popular concept, as you can well imagine. I mean, let's be honest. If we know that there's a God who loves us, whose love for us can't be shaken, of course we're going to be drawn to that idea. But when we begin to explore God's love for us, we must ask the question, why? Why does he love us unconditionally? When we ask that question, then suddenly there's a polarization that occurs in the answers. There's a biblical explanation and a worldly explanation. And the second one of those answers demonstrates a cheapening of God's grace. You see, when we begin to believe that God loves us because of us, who we are, then a shift occurs in the whole of the Bible. Christ's life, Christ's death, and resurrection becomes all about us. We make the Bible all about us when we reason that God loves us because of something that we are or something perhaps that we have to offer instead of recognizing the fact that we have nothing to offer God and that what he did was for his honor and glory and not for our purposes. That would make us the object of our own faith if that were true. We would say the Bible is now about us and we begin to indirectly worship ourselves. But nothing could be further from the truth. David Platt made this comment. He said, The message of biblical Christianity is not God loves me, period, as if we were the object of our own faith. The message of biblical Christianity is God loves me so that I might make him his ways, his salvation, his glory, and his greatness known amongst all the nations. God is the object of our faith and Christianity centers around him. We are not the end of the gospel. God is. 1 John 4.10 says, herein is love. Not that we love God. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. John points out here that it was not our doing that brought God to where he needed to bring about our repentance. It was entirely God's doing. We didn't offer him anything. We didn't have any kind of redeeming value of our own. What's more is God's grace must be considered in the context of what it cost. Grace is freely offered, yes, absolutely. God offers it freely to all who believe. But it did not come without a monumental cost. It cost the very blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.
0: Amen.
1: It came at the cost of a suffering and death of a sinless, perfect, holy sacrifice. And we can't ever, ever allow ourselves to lose sight of that truth. And because of that truth, it is God who is the focus of our faith. It is God who deserves to be the object of our adoration. It is God who deserves the glory. And it is why he exhibited this tremendous act of love towards us. You see, that is why he loves us. It's a fundamental part of who he is. And in that, we should be, he should be glorified as a result. The grace of God was incredibly costly and his willingness to offer to us freely deserves to be the message of the reason why we glorify him before others.
0: Amen.
1: The second thing Jude's pointing out here is denying the lordship of Christ. That these men were denying the lordship. Or in other words, they were denying Christ as lord of their lives. But what does that look like? What exactly does it mean to deny the lordship of Christ or to deny him as the lord of your life? There's an extreme form of it that has become more and more prevalent in our society. And that's being focused more on being politically correct and tolerant to those who do not believe the God of the Bible. Let me share with you something that was said recently. Not recently, I shouldn't say. That was shared some time ago in the chamber of our nation's House of Representatives. This was during a prayer to open our session of Congress. Now I want you to keep in mind, the individual saying this was a minister. Supposedly a minister of the gospel. Uh, after what he had prayed what seemed kind of like the typical middle-of-the-road prayer, an ordained United Methodist minister closed the prayer with the following statement. We ask it in the name of the monotheistic God Brahma and God known by many names and many different faiths. Amen and a woman. Now, I could, I could go on for days about this, but I'm going to keep my remarks short. It's not my practice to involve myself in politics from the pulpit, but this man was supposed to be a minister who said this. What's more is, I don't typically call out other ministers, but this has got to be addressed, folks. And my doing so entirely in li- is entirely in line with what Jude is telling his fellow believers to do. Let's first address the comments of amen and a woman. In what was perceived to be an effort to appear gender inclusive, this congressman exhibited a clear lack of understanding of the meaning of the word amen. Now, if you look at the word amen in the Bible, it is one of the most basic of word studies. It reveals that the it's Hebrew of origin. It is pronounced nearly identically in both the Hebrew and the Greek as amen and it has absolutely nothing to do with gender whatsoever, but rather it means so be it or truth." Mm-hmm. He was challenged by the, about this later on afterwards and he tried to kind of play it off as a pun or a joke. To that I would ask this gentleman, why he thinks the time before the throne of God in prayer is a time for joking around. Mm-hmm. If he truly understood the purpose and privilege of prayer, he would have known there is no place for this. Remember what Jude was talking about, about men who live without a reverential awe of God? The fear of God in the Bible is a reverential awe of God. It's not a fear like, oh my gosh, he's going to hurt me type of fear. It is a reverential Fear. It's a a, fear, a reverential awe of God. Alright, so let's take another look at part of the closing here where he evokes the name of Brahma and refers to God known by many names and in many faiths. Well, first of all, who is Brahma? Well, Brahma is a creator god in Hinduism and he's also a leading god in Buddhism. Let's be very, very clear about something. The one true God is known by many names. Jehovah, Yahweh, Elohim, and many others that we find in the scriptures. But what we must also be clear about is that the gods of Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Animism, and all the other cults and false religions out there are not the god of the Bible. Nor should anyone be invoking their names, let alone a minister, in their prayers. In fact, the Bible suggests that many false gods are actually demons who exhibit powers to deceive. Nothing like opening our Congress in the name of a demon god. And we wonder why so much hate and discord exists in our government. This is exactly the kind of thing described in our verses where it describes these false prophets as denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Someone once said that the litmus test of authentic Christianity is the lordship of Jesus Christ. Let that sink in for a second. The litmus test for authentic Christianity is the lordship of Jesus Christ. Is he truly lord in your life? Do you want the salvation but not the lordship of Jesus? Do you want the get out of hell free card? But that's okay, Jesus. I'll live my life my way. The Lordship of Jesus Christ is, in part, acknowledging Him as the one true God and acknowledging His full authority over your life. I'm just going to leave that part there, but my point in bringing this up is to show an example of what Jude is talking about and to show that it's very much alive and well today. And I also want to warn about regarding ministers of the gospel who want to put a current day spin on their preaching or tailor it to the current culture of the day and try to make it more palatable for people. One of the biggest problems begins when a minister of the gospel forgets his role as simply a medium, a means of God speaking to the people as God communicates his word. We are God's mouthpiece for the people as a minister. There also exists to some extent for every Christian who has become a owner of the gospel who is to spread the gospel. But as a minister and as a man entrusted with God's word, I have a responsibility to communicate truths without my own bias, meaning my opinion doesn't matter. God's truth is the only thing that matters. I cannot put my own spin on it And molding it to make it acceptable to current cultures or the moral evolution that we see in our country today is not acceptable. The word is what it is. It can stand fully on its own in any age or culture. Ministers are simply an instrument to make it known. And another thing that denying the Lordship of Christ would look like is when their goals are self-motivated, when their faith is really all about what they could get out of it. Look at Romans chapter 16, verse 18. For they uh, that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Take a look at the lives of some of these ministers of these large, very popular churches. And I see in their lives it reflects their faith. How they live reflects their faith. One of the uh, preachers that I like to listen to made a comment one time in his views of money. And I, I, I like the way he thinks in this respect. He says when someone gets a raise, the worldly thinking is, oh, I can live so much better now. I can live, I can do this now that I wasn't able to do before. Or I can afford this now that I couldn't afford before. He says the reality is you were living at a certain means before. Why do you need to live above that? God is the one who gives you what money you have. It all belongs to him. He is a cattle on a thousand hills. Everything we have is his. So when he blesses us with a windfall or with a raise or something along those lines, that is to be used to further his purposes and his glory. Meaning that raise is a means to further a mission overseas. To sponsor a missionary. To buy Bibles to, for a, a, a area that is short on funds for Bibles. Or any other means of furthering God's kingdom. But that's the mindset. It's not so you can go buy this multi-million dollar private jet. In these instances we have taken the Lord Jesus Christ off the throne. And we've placed are themselves squarely there when we choose to do our thing, when we choose to make ourselves the focus. And this self-focus bleeds over into the teaching and preaching of these individuals. Now, having said this, we've got to consider what kind of an approach we should use when Jude said, contend for the faith. What kind of attitude should we have? We've kind of gotten warned about all this, and we say, okay, how do we do this then? How do we contend for the faith? Should we go out just banging on heads and everything, trying to get people to get our attention? Should we be defensive and offended for such disrespect of God's teachings in the person of Jesus Christ? Should we exhibit righteous anger in doing so, turning over chairs and pews in church? Well, A.W. Tozer put it this way, and I like the way he put it. He said, dare to contend without being contentious. Preserve the truth without hurting people. Love and be charitable. We have got to struggle. We've got to fight to ensure that our faith remains as it is, as it went, when it was given to us. But we've got to contend with the faith, or for the faith, so that others might know the truth and not be deceived. We've got to contend for the faith so that others can understand their spiritual bankruptcy before God. Their desperate, hopeless position in condemnation. We've got to contend for the faith so that their confession that through their confession before God, their surrender to His Lordship and their spiritual rebirth, that God might be glorified. But we've got to contend for that faith in love. A love for others that's born out of a love for the Savior who rescued us from our sin. A love that recognizes that we too, at one time, were unbelieving, deceived, rebellious, We've got to contend for souls of so many who are condemned at this very moment to an eternity of damnation. We've got to contend for the purity of the faith for so many who need to hear the truth. And that is a truth that stands throughout the ages. You see, attacks on the gospel are nothing new. Attacks on the faith are nothing new. We see clearly that it's been going on for thousands of years. There have been kings and people who tried to eliminate God's word from the the existence entirely. And yet God's word is still here today. And if you look, it is the most popular, fastest selling book in the world. Period. God said his word was going to remain. And we are the messengers. We are the ones that are let, need to let folks know what that message, that book, is all about. And the fundamental story is Jesus Christ and what He has done to rescue us from ourselves. Amen. God has laid before us an offer. He has laid before us a plan that will keep us from an eternity of suffering. He's made it very, very simple. It's not complicated. There's not a, 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 some hidden agenda or unknown target that we've got to shoot for. He has made it very plain and simple for us. If we will confess our sins before God and believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again three days later, then we can be saved from an eternity of suffering. And it's not up here. It's not an academic ascension to it. It's a heartfelt surrender to it. And that's where the Lordship of Jesus Christ comes in. Because when we recognize our need, recognize who we are, recognize that we need Jesus Christ, He becomes Lord of our lives. And our life changes as a result. We become a new creature, as Paul puts it.
0: Amen.
1: Have you experienced that kind of revolutionary change in your life? Have you given Jesus Christ lordship over your life? Perhaps at some time in your life you said, well, you know, that message of heaven sounds pretty good. I like the idea of going to heaven and avoiding hell, but you never really gave Jesus lordship. Why not do so today? Why not recognize your need for Jesus Christ and experience the joy that rises above your circumstances? Experience the confidence and the peace that knowing when you leave this world, whenever that might be, the best is yet to come. Let's stand as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come before your throne this morning, we are grateful for this time we've had together. Lord, help us to contend for the faith just as Jude has called us to. Help us to always stand boldly on your word and never be willing to compromise or hedge in any way, Lord. Help us to speak out when we need to speak out. uh, Make it known that your position on things are not in accordance with what society is saying, Lord. But let us do so in love and peace as you would have us to do it, Lord. Let us be willing to sacrifice in, in doing so. And, Lord, let us always maintain that you are the Lord of our lives, that you call the shots, that you are the one that gives us direction, and that we are submissive to you in every act and every word that we speak. And Lord, let us continue to look to you for direction. Let us continue to look to you for guidance in our lives. May everyone that is here today hear the call of the Holy Spirit and whatever that might be. If if you're calling them to salvation, if you're calling to them for uh, uh, some ministry, if you're calling to them for church membership, whatever it might be, Lord, just speak to their hearts in such a way that they can't resist. And Lord, we love you and praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you for joining us today. Tune in next time for another Walk in God's Word. Podcasts are available in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and Audible, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, Castbox, Downcast, and Beyond Pod. Search for and subscribe to Providence Baptist Church, space hyphen space, Gaston Sermons. Until next time, may God bless you as we await His joyful return.
1: Hi, this is John Friedrich, pastor of Providence Baptist Church. It's my prayer that our time together has helped you grow in your walk with God, or maybe He's even used it to guide you to discover the wonderful gift of salvation. If you're ever in our area, we would love for you to come worship with us. Our address is Providence Baptist Church, 977 Meadowfield Road, Gaston, South Carolina, 29053. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so through our website at www.providencembcgaston.com or email us at providencembcgaston at gmail.com. Again, thank you for tuning in and we look forward to you joining us next time as we take a walk in the Word.